Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Coming up on the science revolution, the fossil fuel oligarchs are trying to deceive us again, and the entire nation of Australia is on fire. Plus, the Trump EPA approved over 100 products with pesticides banned in other countries or slated for U.S. phase-out. The U.N. is outlining its 2030 goals to prevent the next great extinction event. Find out how they're planning to accomplish this. And in Geeky Science, discover how noise pollution is impacting our oceans. Stay tuned. You know, just insane example of, well, uh, we need to hear both sides-ism from an issue in which there are not two sides. Climate change, specifically. Climate change deniers are liars, shills. It's, it's just breathtaking. The fossil fuel oligarchs are doing their best to deceive an entire nation about fire. This is just mind-boggling. Alex Jones and Murdoch Media are pushing two big lies about the massive fires around Australia. This is the hottest year in Australia and the driest year in Australian history. The entire continent is on fire right now. In three states now, they have wildfires that are completely out of control. And in every other state, there are fires going on. The United States is shipping firefighters over to Australia. But the argument that's being made in Murdoch newspapers, and keep in mind, Rupert Murdoch controls more than 50% of newspaper circulation in Australia. The argument that's being made by these newspapers, and it's being repeated by right-wing conspiracy theorists here in the United States who have bought into the climate change-denying position that Murdoch obviously holds and that Scott Morrison, the prime minister of Australia, explicitly, openly holds, as does Donald Trump. The two lies are, number one, that it's arson causing these fires. It's bad people. And, you know, in fact, there have been 20 or 30 people arrested for arson in Australia, but those cases of arson for which these people have been arrested account for a single-digit percentage of the fires in Australia. It's just a little tiny, fewer than, I think it's fewer than 6%. It's just a little tiny bit. And, of course, you always have arsonists, you know, they go, oh, a fire, hey, let's, you know. We had the same problem in California, but it wasn't arsonists who were causing the, the big fires, It was PG&E not maintaining their power lines and shoveling literally over a billion dollars to their stockholders and their senior executives that should have been used to clear trees and, and bury power lines. So number one, that it's arsonists. And number two, and this is a really despicable lie, 
the Murdoch newspapers and the right-wing media, and now it appears that some foreign bots are just promoting this really aggressively on Facebook in Australia and in the United States. The second lie is that the Green Party doesn't like the firefighters going out and starting backfires. Now, a backfire is, say, say you've got a fire you know, coming through a forest, and ahead of that fire, ahead of that forest, is a town. And you don't want to burn down the town. So what do you do? You go in and you start a fire just before where this fire is heading so that it burns up all the fuel and you control that fire so you can put it out after it's done. So when the fire gets there, there's nothing to feed it and it dies out and goes away. That's called backfires. And the Green Party in Australia is just fine with backfires. But the Murdoch newspapers have been repeating this lie that it's Green Party activists fighting the backfires that are making the fires worse. And it's been repeated on social media. It's been repeated by other right-wing hosts. According to the Desmog blog, that would include Alex Jones. It's amazing. And then CNN's top story in its world news section. Police, this is the headline. Police in Australia are accusing 24 people of deliberately setting bushfires. Well, yeah, probably, over a period of months. But that doesn't mean that any of these big fires were set by these guys. None of them were. The vast majority of them were caused by lightning or ignited by lightning. They were caused by drought. When the average temperature of the entire country, the entire continent, average temperature of the entire continent is over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know there's going to be some, some problems. The Guardian reported that a spokeswoman for the Victoria Police said there is currently no intelligence to indicate that fires in East Gippsland or the Northeast have been caused by arson or any other suspicious behavior. They quoted a rural fire service spokesman saying the majority of the larger fires in the state of New South Wales were caused by lightning and arson was a relatively small source of ignition. The New New South Wales Fire Brigade is trying to step on the on the suggestion that the that the fires are are out of control because of the Green Party. Now John Cook, this is one of those these firefighters, he says the client denier conspiracy theory blaming Australia's bushfire catastrophe on arson emergency is so ridiculous and offensive it deserves to be lampooned. This is from Seven News in Sydney, New South Wales. Rural Fire Service boss, and then they have his Twitter handle, has shot down Barnaby Joyce's claim that green caveats stopped his team from conducting hazard reduction burns leading to the bushfire crisis. And this is, you know, the Desmog blog, of course, tweeted, 2019 was the year when the climate crisis could no longer be ignored from wildfires to record storms. And still, oil companies like Exxon and Shell continue to make long-term plans to produce as much oil and gas as possible. This is a disaster. It's just breathtaking. In Australia, at News Corp, which publishes, as I said, more than half of the newspaper circulation in Australia is owned by Rupert Murdoch, a woman named Emily Townsend was the commercial finance manager 
for News Corp. And she wrote a letter of resignation, which got leaked to the press. She resigned her job. And in her letter, she wrote, and I quote, by the way, if you want to see this, it's the Sydney Morning Herald, smh.com.au. She wrote, I've been severely, which is not a Rupert Murdoch newspaper. I have been severely impacted by the coverage of News Corp publications in relation to the fires, in particular the misinformation campaign that has tried to divert attention away from the real issue, which is climate change, to rather focus on arson, including misrepresenting facts. I find it unconscionable to continue working for this company, knowing I am contributing to the spread of climate change denial and lies. The reporting I have witnessed in the Australian, the Daily Telegraph, and the Herald Sun, these are the big Murdoch-owned newspapers in Australia, is not only irresponsible, but dangerous and damaging to our communities and beautiful planet that needs us more than ever to acknowledge the destruction we have caused and start doing something about it. So her story got leaked, and the News Corp has rebutted it, you know, and said News Corp stands by its coverage of the bushfires, the dedication and professionalism of our journalists and photographers have kept the community, particularly those Australians affected, directly informed and supported. We respect Ms. Townsend's right to hold her views, but we do not agree with them. And then they went on to say, News Corp does not deny climate change. However, we do report a variety of views and opinions on this issue. Right. So then she responded to that. She said, everything I said in the email, I stand by. I feel sick, not because the email has been circulated, but because I have been contributing to this deception by continuing to work for this company. I have been unable to sleep. This has really preoccupied my thinking. It is unconscionable what this company has been doing when it comes to climate change. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Here's the science interview this week. On the line with us is Dr. Nathan Donnelly. He is the senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. They've just issued an absolutely startling report about what the EPA is up to with regard to some of these pesticides. Dr. Donnelly, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Tell us what's going on with this. The headline, Trump EPA approves 100-plus products with pesticides banned elsewhere or slated for U.S. phase-out. Yeah, so what I did was I submitted a Freedom of Information Act request to the EPA to identify what pesticide products the EPA has been approving recently. And so I focused on 2017 and 2018. And the information I got back was pretty crazy. In those two years, the EPA has approved about 1,200 pesticide products for use. It's about 600 per year. And the application approval rate is really high. It's about 94% of all pesticide applications ultimately gained approval. Is that and normal? So when I, uh, and that, that's, that's a good question. That's something I don't know because my analysis is really only uh, tailored to those two years. My mm-hmm. guess is that's pretty normal, actually, from just from the experience I've had with this agency. It's pretty normal. And so what really caught my eye was actually some of the ingredients in the products that were approved. You know, there were some products that had some really pretty benign ingredients in there, but there were really some, I'd say over a hundred 
have some of the worst of the worst pesticides still allowed for use in the U.S. And some of these, like you mentioned, are banned in other countries, particularly other countries that have a lot of agriculture like the United States. So this is worrisome, and it really goes against the EPA's main talking point is that they're constantly trying to progress. They're constantly trying to replace the worst pesticides with others that are less harmful. And, you know, what I really think this finds is that if that's really EPA's intent, then why on earth are they approving products as recently as a year or two ago with some of the worst of the worst pesticides that they've publicly stated that they're trying to replace. Now, I remember some years ago, I believe it was 60 Minutes, like a decade or so ago, maybe two decades ago, did a special on atrazine. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. This is an endocrine disruptor. They were spraying it on apples, as I recall, and that report on 60 Minutes actually hurt the Washington state apple business. But that pesticide then I thought was banned, at least at least across Europe, and was not largely being used here in the United States. I see there's 17 new products with atrazine in it. Am I remembering this correctly? You may be remembering the report correctly, but certainly not atrazine's use in the United States. Atrazine is currently the second most widely used pesticide in the United States behind glyphosate, which is the active ingredient Roundup. We use about 70 to 80 million pounds of atrazine each year, mostly on corn and sorghum and sugarcane. It's also used on residential lawns, golf courses, athletic fields. What are the consequences of being exposed to atrazine? Well, it really depends on the level that you're exposed to, but we know that there are epidemiological studies done in humans associating high atrazine exposure with things like kidney disease, cancer, and reproductive harms like irregular menstrual cycles in women and decreased sperm count in men. And the environmental harms, I would say, are probably even worse, particularly to aquatic organisms like fish and amphibians like frogs and salamanders. The level of atrazine needed to cause reproductive harm to these aquatic species is extremely minuscule, much lower than actually is allowed in our drinking water. Um, So it has major environmental implications, and it's one of the most prevalent pesticide water contaminants in the country. And in the last two years, as you mentioned, the U.S. EPA has approved 17 new pesticide products containing atrazine, which is really worrisome. Yeah, it, it truly is. You also note that they that many of the new pesticides that are being rolled out contain multiple active ingredients, but that the FDA does not examine what happens when products, when two different chemicals are in the same soup, basically, you know, whether it's additive, whether it's synergistic, whether it's, you know, <laughs> disastrous. Why is that? Well, the EPA, which is the agency in charge of this, it's really from a practicality standpoint. The sheer number of mixtures that you can encounter in the environment is really astronomical, particularly with regards to the permissive labels on a lot of these pesticide products. You can mix them, match them, do whatever with them before you spray them in the field. And when you have a large amount of chemical inputs in a relatively small amount of land, like happens often in the Midwest and across lots of agricultural regions. You just have all this stuff running off into the lakes and streams, drifting into the air. And so, you know, to really get a grasp on this is going to require so much more study than we're even capable of doing. So I think 
That's more of a practicality standpoint for them. That's not really based on a robust science. scientific review. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, or practicality or budgets, because obviously they could do that research if they had enough scientists and, and enough of a budget. I thought that in 1998, 22 years ago, the EPA started this new program called Reduced Risk. And the goal of it was to uh, basically reduce the risk of these chemicals in our environment. What happened with that? <laughs> that sort of came to be right around the time the Food Quality Protection Act was signed into law in 1996. Uh, this increased uh, some safeguards to humans from pesticides. And so the idea was to identify really some of the worst classes of pesticides and then incentivize pesticide companies to come up with replacements to those really, really harmful chemicals. And so the idea was that at, over time, we would sort of eventually be replacing the worst of the worst pesticides with some that have a better safety profile. I think that that's probably happened to a small extent, but a lot of the products that have been approved in the last two years contain these same ingredients that EPA is incentivizing replacement for. So while EPA is incentivizing replacement, it's also approving new products with those ingredients that they're trying to replace. So they're sort of working against themselves and not in the best interests of society. Has the FDA become a captured agency you know, like the FCC has? Basically, the FCC dances to the tune of big telecom companies and, and big Internet service providers. Is the EPA dancing to the tune of the pesticide industry rather than protecting the public, which is their mandate? Yeah, so the EPA is a really large agency, and it has a lot of different sub-agencies in it. Um, some are worse than the others. Some are, you know, some are good, some are better. Some, but I would say the pesticide office at the EPA is really pretty bad and not reflective of the EPA at large. And a lot of that really comes down to access and the influence of the agrochemical industry. So in the 1980s, U.S. law made it so that pesticide companies have been on the hook for a lot of the costs associated with pesticide regulation. And in the early 2000s, with the passage of PREA, which is the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act, pesticide companies are on the hook for about 30 to 40 percent of the salaries, the operating costs of the pesticide office at the EPA. So the pesticide industry actually loves PREA. And why on earth would they love PREA if it costs them tens of millions of dollars each year and it's because it intermingles the regulator and the regulated. That money has bought them a lot of access that most industries don't really have at the EPA. They're in constant communication with each other to the point where the line between the two becomes very blurry. And I think that level of familiarity is really improper and not in alignment with an effective separation of industry and government. Is there also a revolving door problem there? Yeah, absolutely. More people uh, working yeah. for the EPA, if they dance to the tune of the pesticide industry, they know that they can get a really good paying job when they leave in the industry? Yeah, there have been people that have, have documented that. I'm not too familiar with it, but from what I've heard from people that I trust, there is definitely quite a revolving door there. Yeah, remarkable stuff. Dr. Nathan Donnelly, he is the senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity. Biologicaldiversity.org is the website. Dr. Donnelly, thanks so much for dropping by today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great talking with you. Amazing. Amazing. Trump EPA approves 100 plus products with pesticides banned in other countries. Sponsoring the interview this week is 
New Leaf Natural CBD oil. Boy, with all this impeachment stuff and Trump treason flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think it's the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NUleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Newleafnaturals.com. In this week's Geeky Science... The ocean is being polluted by noise. The ocean is not a silent world. Sound waves travel farther and faster in the sea's dark depths than they do in the air. Marine mammals like whales and dolphins, fish and other sea creatures depend on sound communication to find food, a mate, and to make their way around. But an increase of human-generated ocean noise pollution is changing the underwater sound landscape, hurting and killing marine species all around the world. There's a continuing din of the 60,000 commercial tankers and container ships that are all over the ocean. There's the high-intensity sonar used by the U.S. Navy for testing and training that has been linked to mass whale strandings. In the hunt for offshore oil and gas, ships equipped with high-powered air guns fire compressed air into the water every 10 to 12 seconds for weeks to months on end. Traveling as far as 2,500 miles, these deafening seismic blasts disrupt foraging, mating, and other vital behaviors of endangered whales and may ultimately push some, such as the North Atlantic right whale, to extinction. The blasts lead some commercial fish species to abandon their habitats, creating a direct hit on fishing-dependent coastal economies. They also injure and kill marine invertebrates, including scallops, crabs, and squid. It's the good, the bad, and the very, very ugly. The good. JetBlue is set to be the first carbon-neutral airline in the United States. The discount airline intends to buy carbon offsets for all of its flights starting this coming July, according to CBS News. Robin Haynes, JetBlue's CEO, said, By offsetting all of our domestic flying, we're preparing our business for the lower carbon economy that aviation and all sectors must plan for. Good on you, JetBlue. The bad, U.S. broadcast news for their coverage of the Australian fires, as American news outlets mostly fail to connect the crisis to climate change. The scale of the fires burning in Australia is huge, and so far, at least 27 people have died. More than 12 million acres have been destroyed, and an estimated 1 billion animals have been killed. And the fire season in Australia is just getting started. Shame on you, America's commercial news networks. And the very, very ugly, 
Laura Ingram for dismissing climate change. She said during a recent interview about receding glaciers as a consequence of climate change, that's why we have the Rocky Mountains. Ingram added, I mean, the glaciers, when they recede, they leave pointed peaks. Wow, that's just weird and very, very ugly. Today on the Science News Beat, in its 15th Global Risks Report, recently published, the World Economic Forum is saying that for the first time in the report's history, all of the world's top long-term risks by likelihood are environmental. While in the previous decade, economic and financial crises were seen as most dangerous, this report has found that risk perceptions have shifted to extreme weather, environmental disasters, biodiversity loss, natural catastrophes, and the failure to mitigate climate change. The World Economic Forum concludes its 2020 risks assessment by saying that, quote, as the window of opportunity is closing, coordinated multi-stakeholder action is needed quickly to mitigate against the worst outcomes. Did you hear this on the corporate news? The UN is outlining its 2030 goals to save our planet's biodiversity and to prevent a massively destructive extinction event. The draft plan will be used at a meeting in Kuming, China, where governments will discuss new global rules to protect life on Earth. According to the plan, 30% of the world's land and seas must be protected over the next decade to stop the destruction of our planet's biodiversity. The draft text published by the UN on Monday proposes a 10-year strategy to stop the decline and extinction of species and let ecosystems recover by 2050. Hopefully, governments will adopt these new targets to replace the goals agreed on in Achai, Japan in 2010, which sadly have missed their mark. A major report by the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services in May last year warned species extinction was accelerating and reported one million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction, with climate change identified as one of the three biggest drivers. The Kumning meeting will be a key moment for the world to define a global strategy to protect biodiversity and avoid the possibility of human extinction. Let's cross our fingers this October. A new study published in the journal Advances in Atmospheric Studies shows that the Earth's oceans have reached the highest temperatures since records began. They found the oceans have warmed by around 0.075 degrees Celsius on the average, above the average of 1981 to 2010. That level of warming, the paper found, is equal to 228 sextillion joules of heat. Study leader Ling Cheng said, quote, The amount of heat we have put in the world's oceans in the past 25 years equals 3.6 billion Hiroshima bomb explosions. This measured ocean warming is irrefutable and is further proof of global warming. There are no reasonable alternatives aside from the human emissions of heat-trapping gases to explain this heating, end quote. And the warming is speeding up, the scientists found. According to co-author of the report, John Abraham, talking to CNN, we are now at five to six Hiroshima bombs of heat each second being injected into the oceans. The oceans warm slowly, said Cheng, but due to their vast size, that warming has dire consequences. Cheng added, the price we pay is the reduction of ocean-dissolved oxygen, 
the harmed marine lives, strengthening storms, and reduced fisheries, and the destruction of ocean-related economies. However, the more we reduce greenhouse gases, the less the ocean will warm. Let's hope this urgent call for global action to address the climate crisis is taken seriously before it's too late. A new report from the American Cancer Society has identified the largest single-year decline in the U.S. cancer death rate to date, likely spurred by reductions in smoking. The rate of Americans dying from cancer fell by 2.2 percent from 2016 to 2017, marking 26 consecutive years of a decreasing cancer death rate since it peaked in 1991, according to a report published in CA, a cancer journal for clinicians. Rebecca Siegel, lead author and scientific director of surveillance research at the American Cancer Society, told CNN, what is really driving that is the decline of mortality for lung cancer, because lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death, causing more deaths in the U.S. than breast, colorectal cancer, and prostate cancers combined. Cancer is second only to heart disease when it comes to the leading causes of death in the United States, accounting for more than 25% of all deaths. The report found that the lung cancer death rate for men has fallen 51% since 1990 and 26% for women since 2002. This decline has accelerated in recent years, apparently because of a rapid decline in smoking that started in the 1990s when the tobacco company's decades of lies were publicly revealed. President Trump took credit for the decline in cancer rates. Seriously, he did. But in reality, he had nothing to do with it. Drinking tea at least three times a week is linked to a longer and healthier life, according to a study published today in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology. First author Yan Wang said the favorable health effects are the most robust for green tea and for long-term habitual tea drinkers. Compared with never or non-habitual tea drinkers, habitual tea consumers had a 20% lower risk of heart disease and stroke, 22% lower risk of fatal heart disease and stroke, and a 15% decreased risk from all causes of death. Habitual tea drinkers who maintained their habit for decades had a 39% lower risk of heart disease and stroke, 56% lower risk of fatal heart disease and stroke, and 29% decreased risk of all death causes compared to consistent, never, or non-habitual tea drinkers. Mysterious hums that were heard around the world in 2018 have now been identified the rumblings of a magma-filled reservoir under the Indian Ocean, announcing the birth of an underwater volcano. For months, the forming volcano produced tiny earthquakes and a slight humming too weak to feel. That changed on November 11, 2018, when the new volcano announced its birth by sending seismic waves all over the world. They were felt in Kenya, Chile, Canada, and Hawaii, nearly 11,000 miles away. In strange science news, losing your tongue fat can improve the problem of sleep apnea. Yep, you heard me. Your tongue could be too fat, and it could be a new target for treating this sleep disorder. Using magnetic resonance imaging, researchers at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine found that reducing tongue fat is a primary factor in lessening the severity of sleep apnea. And that's the science news beat. Our science fact of the week. What percentage of the ocean is polluted? A recent study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that at least 88% of the Earth's ocean surface 
is polluted with plastic debris. That's it for today's Science Revolution. And remember, change begins with you. Tag, you're it.